0: section 49 of letters from victorian pioneers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org letters from victorian pioneers letter 49 from eps sturt lonsdale street 20th of october 1853 my dear sir As far as my recollections will allow me to record some of the circumstances attending my early career and travels through this southern portion of our Australian possessions, and by so doing contribute to the fund of information you have already gathered through your own long experience and personal observation, it will afford me much pleasure. My early initiation into bush life was as a commissioner of Crown Lands for the Murray District in 1837, a portion of the colony at that time very thinly occupied by stations, though now forming one of our richest grazing districts. Provided with a good tent and camp equipage, a small supply of books and writing materials, a trusty Wesley Richards with an ample supply of ammunition, a capital nag and some fine kangaroo dogs, you may easily conceive that I looked forward to my expeditions with feelings of pleasure and excitement. My means of transport was a light cart with two draft horses, which, with a large tarpaulin, afforded an ample shelter for the men. The district allotted to me was from the left side of the Murrumbidgee to the right bank of the Ovens River, 40 miles on the Port Phillip side of the Murray. The country was at this time most beautiful, miles of it untrodden by stock, and indeed unseen by Europeans. Every creek abounded with wild fowl, and the quails sprung from the long kangaroo grass which waved to the very flaps of the saddle. Seldom on my return to the encampment, after a long day's ride to some outstations, but what I had to acknowledge the culinary talents of my tent-servant, as the savoury steam of a stew or pastry would rise from the iron pot, simmering by a glorious fire in front of the tent. No dinner cooked by the most cunning artiste is equal to that one enjoys under such circumstances as those I describe, nor can anything equal the relish which is afforded by the quart-pot of tea, A delicacy I know you have yourself appreciated on some of Your Excellency's flying expeditions. It has often been a source of regret to me that all the charms attending the traversing of a new country must give way to the march of civilization. The camp on the grassy sward is now superseded by the noisy roadside inn, the quart pot of tea by the bottle of ale. All the quiet serenity of an Australian bush, as we have known it, has yielded to the demands of population, and this, though a necessary change, is not the less to be regretted. I look back to those days as to some joyous scene of schoolboy holidays. The seasons appear to me to have undergone a considerable change, and to have become both colder and more moist. For though a fire was fully appreciated, the weather generally was mild and dry. My impression with regard to the increased rains is borne out by the fact that many tracts of country are now occupied by stock, which I have ridden over, vainly seeking for water to relieve my distressed horse and moisten my parched lips. I may particularly allude to the Billabong country and to those plains and flatbox country extending between the Edward and Murrumbidgee rivers. For miles and miles I have ridden over this monotonous, dreary flat, not a hill to be seen to raise the hope that some creek or waterhole might be at hand, the eyes aching with the dazzling reflection and mirage of the plains. Sheep are now occupying the whole of this country, the supply of water for the stations being obtained by sinking waterholes and throwing dams across the slight falls or declinations of the plain, which, though barely visible, yet here and there in the wet seasons become runs of water. Even this, however, affords a precarious supply, and the losses and suffering of these settlers are very great. In the dry seasons, they frequently have to move on with their flocks, towards some of the rivers, for their absolute salvation, and driven to become interlopers and marauders on others' runs, their existence is far from enviable. Their risk, too, of spreading or contracting contagious diseases among their flocks thus becomes very great. The heat is also here excessive, which together with the general dryness of the atmosphere and pasturage deteriorates the character of the wools. Notwithstanding, however, these drawbacks, it may safely be considered a fine pastoral district. The country to the south-east of the main Sydney road to Port Phillip rises towards the Australian Alps, to which snow-capped mountains we are indebted for the numerous streams and rivers flowing through the lower and, in summer, arid regions to the north and north-west, most of which unite with the Murray. The nearer we approach the mountains, both the climate and character of the soil change. I've noticed that the upper Murray and tablelands of Omeo afford an abundant but coarse, unnutritious grass. The trees also assume a cold and wintry appearance, and the foliage becomes yet more sombre than the generality of Australian trees. One circumstance I noticed is strange and difficult to account for. Though the climates on the Murray and Murrumbidgee rivers exactly assimilate and the distance between them is inconsiderable, about 130 miles, the appearance of the two rivers differs materially. The banks of the Murrumbidgee are wooded with large swamp oak, as is also the case with its tributaries, the Lachlan, Burua and Tumut rivers, etc., etc. On the latter, these large oaks overhang the banks until they nearly meet, imparting a peculiar gloom to this rapid stream. On the murray, the oak entirely disappears, being replaced by the bright wattle or acacia. The scent of its masses of blossom in the spring pervades the air, and adds to the pleasing effect this graceful tree has on the mind of the traveller, enhanced by the wild, sweet call of the bellbird. Another peculiarity attending these rivers flowing to the north and northwest is that they abound in a fine fish called the murray cod. In season these fish are very rich and afford the chief sustenance of the natives, who spear them from their canoes, at the prow of which they have a brilliant fire of pines, which attracts the fish at night and entices them to their destruction. Strange to say that all the streams and rivers flowing to the south and southwest, though in many instances taking their source from the same mountains, are devoid of the river cod, having only the blackfish, a peculiar kind of herring, and the eel, which run to a large size. About this time commenced the stream of emigration into Port Phillip, and the main line of road became enlivened by the overland parties, crowding one after another to the newly opened and rich pasturages of the south. Numerous were the incidents, both by flood and field, which these adventurers met with. The rivers were all unbridged and afforded no small obstacle to the overlander, taxing both his courage, enterprise and invention to overcome his difficulties. The danger of attack from the natives was not inconsiderable, and I need hardly call to your recollection the melancholy destruction of Mr. Faithful's party, who were attacked near the Ovens River, several of the men being killed. I happened to meet one of the poor wretches who escaped, thanks to his speed of foot and endurance, as he was pursued many miles by the merciless savages, and though severely wounded he ran forty miles and at last dropped at my tent, overcome by fatigue and terror. The natives were at all times treacherous to a degree, and the murders they committed were numerous. I admit that they sometimes met with treatment from some of the whites sufficient to excite their enmity, but I cannot attribute their acts of murder to a spirit of retaliation, nor do I believe that any cruelty was evinced towards them by the Europeans until exasperated by their savage acts of treachery. The natives of Australia are devoid of any feeling of mercy or pity. No native of a foreign tribe would be safe for an hour if in the power of others of the same race.' The most cold-blooded murder will excite no remorse. The braining of a wretched lubra will only add to the heroic and indomitable character of the savage. I knew a fine young lad whom Dr. Martin had civilized. He was a stockman and a very intelligent lad. He accompanied a party with fat stock to Melbourne. At Bun and Yong he fell in with a tribe of natives, and, in the act of giving them tobacco, was basely speared and died in the greatest agony. His only offense was that he belonged to a strange tribe. I have seen a lad of twelve years old drive a spear through the body of an old man, because he refused a loan of his pipe. The father of this precocious youth submitted his head without a groan to three terrific blows from a nulla nulla, inflicted by a relative of the old man's. This was in extenuation of his son's offence. Love to their offspring is the only softening feature in these natives, and that is but an animal propensity natural to the brute creation.' Much is laid to the evil effects resulting from the intimacies known to exist between the shepherds and stockmen and the native women. This encouraged a familiarity with the tribes which revealed the defenceless state of the Europeans, and they too often availed themselves of this knowledge. But a sensitiveness on the point of their women I much doubt, for the first overture the savage makes in barter is the tender of his unfortunate lubra. That there are some instances of their becoming useful men, I cannot deny, as we might instance some of poor Dana's black troopers, but they are rare indeed. It is only under compulsion that their natural disposition can be restrained. Poor Mr. William, whom I assure Your Excellency recollects, is now undergoing his sentence for a breach of the laws at the goldfields. He is now at Pentridge Stockade, in the capacity of a servant to Mr. Barrow. In that capacity, he is a useful good creature, being a capital nurse and playmate for Barrow's children. "'turn the poor fellow away, and he would soon be seen "'in the streets of Melbourne, a drunken sot. "'I suppose the example of others had its effect with me, "'and, seized with an overland fit, "'I resigned my appointment and started for Bathurst, "'and thence with sheep and cattle, to Adelaide. "'It would be uninteresting to give any details of the expedition. "'I believe I was the first to run the Murrumbidgee down with stock. "'At least no trace of four-footed beast was to be seen "'as we approached the field of reeds, "'forming the outlet of the Lachlan into the Murrumbidgee. Here I thought we should have been stopped. As far as the eye could reach was one bed of reeds about 15 feet high. The Lachlan here ceases to have the appearance of a river and loses itself in this bed of reeds. With the drays first, then the cattle, we managed to break down a track for the sheep. And, confident that there was no deep bed of a river to stop us, on we went, and three days' hard work saw us through the Lachlan swamps. I was among the most fortunate of the overlanders, having avoided any serious collisions with the blacks. The country itself was monotonous to a degree. The river runs through a nearly level country. The river flats average about half a mile wide on each side and afford fine feed for the stock and famous camping places at night. From these flats a bank rises to the plains, which extend for hundreds of miles. These plains in some places are thickly covered with a low polygonum scrub. The soil is a species of whitish clay formed into small hills and hollows like molehills. Some fine silvery grass grows in these hollows, and the tops of the rises are utterly devoid of vegetation. The plains are sometimes intersected by a belt of murray scrub running down to the very river. Also, I met with some belts of pine forest in which some very beautiful shrubs and flowers are to be found. The whole of this country has, to my surprise, become now occupied, but I hear that the herbage has improved from being fed over, and the sheep seem to thrive on the various salsalaceous plants which abound. It still, however, takes a vast extent of this kind of country to support any number of sheep. The gum trees on the alluvial flats are magnificent, stately trees, and some of our encampments were singularly picturesque. As for the Murray ever becoming an agricultural country, the idea is absurd. The produce which Sir Henry Young fancies will all be conveyed to Adelaide by steamers is a chimerical idea which never can be realised. The alluvial river flats constitute the sole land in any way suitable to agriculture, and these are flooded during the spring and early part of summer by the melting of the snow on the mountains. There is hardly a settler on the lower Murray who can even luxuriate in a vegetable. The weather during my expedition was most beautiful. We, of course, kept regular watches, and the bugle sounding the morning watch at two o'clock was the signal for the camp to arouse. Breakfast was then cooked, drays loaded, bullocks yoked, and the stock moved off. We then travelled on, but seldom could do much of after ten o'clock in the morning, when the heat would become too intense. The sheep would cluster in knots, seeking any shelter from the intense rays of the sun. We generally managed to make one of the bends of the river at this time, and there lay by, until four or five o'clock, when we would accomplish another three or four miles of our journey. The extraordinary number of birds which collect on the river afforded abundant sport, as well as capital dinners. It appears to be now indisputably settled that the interior of this country is chiefly characterised by barren scrubs and sterile sandhills, forming, as it were, a basin, and yet the flights of birds, all from the north, would lead one to suppose that there must be some oasis in that desert tract, extending to Sir Thomas Mitchell's discoveries on the Victoria River, on which the migratory feathered race might rest on their weary flight. The air would sometimes absolutely resound with the chatter of birds, the lagoons swarming with ducks and snipe, and then the luxury of a plunge into the fresh stream after a hard day's work with the thermometer at 110 degrees Fahrenheit cannot be exceeded. It is curious to observe the skill shown by the natives in their pursuit of game. They catch vast numbers of ducks in an ingenious manner. The lagoons run for some length, narrowing at the end where the trees close in. Two or three blacks plant themselves near this narrow pass, having extended a large net from tree to tree. The others then proceed to the top of the lagoon, driving the ducks before them. As they fly by the ambuscade, they throw their boomerangs whizzing over the heads of the birds, which, dreading that their enemy the hawk is sweeping at them, make a dash under the trees, strike the net, and fall as if shot, when the natives dash in after them. I imagine it's a panic that seizes the poor birds, for I have seen a hundred caught by such means. We encountered some difficulty in crossing our stock and drays over the Rufus and darling, but none which, with a good heart, we did not overcome. Indeed, such difficulties added zest to our labours. At the northwest bend of the Murray, the river takes a sweep to the south into Lake Alexandrina. From this point I left our party to strike across the scrub into Adelaide, or rather into the settled parts of the colony. We had run short of flour and sugar, and my object was to cut through the scrub with a light horse cart and bring out supplies for the party, as well as ascertain the best route in for the stock to take. Tracks of former parties were indistinct, and at the point I struck in, we noticed for some distance a single car track going the direction I wished to follow. This, however, we soon lost, and I discovered that we had fearfully miscalculated the width of the scrub, or its density at the point I entered. Since then, poor young Bryant perished in the same scrub whilst on an expedition with Colonel Gawler, the then Governor of South Australia. It appeared the governor wished to penetrate to some hills north, but finding the scrub too dense and no water to be had, he hastened back to the river, after having had to kill one of the horses. The party somehow separated in pushing for the river. It was a struggle for life, as another day's sun would have been fatal. Poor Bryant must have lost his presence of mind, for his tracks were found running the scrub down parallel to the river, but no traces of the poor fellow could ever be made out. He must have perished a miserable death.' to return to my own misadventures. My party consisted of two men and a native of New South Wales. For two days we cut through the scrub with little appearance of getting out or of finding water. The labour was excessive and the men were improvident with our limited supply of water. The third day saw us without any. Still I was determined to push on to the hills, knowing that by keeping firm in the one direction I must succeed. The heat was terrific and the second day told fearfully upon us. It was doubtful whether we could have made it back to the river, and the hills the object of our aim, and hopes of water I saw before us. So still we plunged on, the poor horses being in a most pitiable condition. The third day we crossed the hills, but not a sup of water to be found in the porous granite ranges. We camped at three o'clock, the men being utterly prostrated, and the horses in a dying state. The plains of Adelaide were before us. I was sure water must be near, So leaving the men a compass with directions that should I not return by morning they should kill one of the horses and moisten their mouths with its blood, and then push on in the same course. I started, or I may say tottered on, for about two miles. When overcome I sunk at the foot of a tree. I never shall forget my sensations at that time. I felt the miserable death awaiting me. I then thought of home, and that I was in some richly carpeted drawing room, and I struggled against insanity.' "'When I recovered to some extent, it was a bright, fresh night. "'I sat up, endeavouring to collect my senses "'when I heard a flight of birds overhead "'and the unmistakable cry of the wood duck. "'With renewed energy, I pushed on, "'and within a hundred yards of me was the creek. "'An hour served sufficiently to restore me, "'and soaking my woollen shirt in the water, "'I retraced my steps to the cart. "'We were saved, but it was touch and go.' One of the men never recovered it, and the last time I saw him, he was an idiot in Adelaide. We were but three days without water, but it was summer and we were working with a blazing sun overhead. My residence since 1844 has been at Mount Gambier, about halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. I there formed a station, and occupied a most splendid portion of country. I just missed Your Excellency when you were at the mount, being then on the point of taking up the country adjacent to the mount." I look at this portion of a colony decidedly as the finest I have ever seen and it would be most interesting to a geologist. When I first occupied it, surface water was very scarce being found only in a few tea tree springs or in the craters of the extinct volcanoes. I however subsequently discovered that the whole country was cavernous and that absolute streams and rivers were flowing within, in some places, a few feet of the surface. The rock is generally limestone which crops from the surface in all directions. Indeed, in some places there are but a few inches of soil above the mass of limestone. Our early occupation of Mount Gambier was marked with perhaps more of the difficulties and troubles generally attending a settler's life. When I took up the station, I was again beginning the world with little more than dear bought experience. The ruinous years of eighteen forty two and eighteen forty three had involved me in the, I may nearly say, universal crash thanks to the improvidence which I believe is as characteristic of the early squatters as of the British sailor, as also to the simplicity with which so many of us scribbled our autographs to pieces of paper, for the relief of pretended friends, whom we found too willing to shuffle their own difficulties on the shoulders of their more generous dupes. There is nothing of which a young man, commencing his career in the colonies, should be more earnestly warned against than this same yielding to the impulse of good nature.' When I fixed on the site of my new homestead, I had not a shilling in the world. Unfortunately, the boot was very much on the other leg, but thanks to the success attending sheep farming, I have outlived my difficulties. The natives were very inimical when we first arrived, and to add to my difficulties, all our men with the exception of one deserted us. I had, however, a trusty friend in poor Edward White, whose daring energy of character has been fully tested in his expeditions in the survey department, to which I am sure Your Excellency will fully testify. Another young friend, Mr Broderib, also bravely adhered to my fortunes. There were but four of us, but we managed to lamb the sheep down and build a bark shed for shearing. With little assistance we sheared the flocks and managed, I can hardly say how, to turn the wool into supplies for the following year. Our neighbour, Mr Leake, suffered many losses from the natives, some thousands, I believe, but we escaped any attack, which I attribute to the astonishment they evinced at seeing the effects of a good rifle aimed by a correct eye, for not a crow would dare to caw on the highest tree near our camp, but a rifle-ball reached him, or a kangaroo bound through the forest within shot, but the sharp ring of the rifle saw him stretched on the sward. I have always thought this gained us their respect.' They gave me the name of a chief who had fallen in battle, and affirmed that I had again come among them as a white fellow. We gained their respect, but it was through fear, and subsequently their confidence through kindness. Many of them have since become useful shepherds, and been of the utmost service to me, but it is difficult to have fat sheep where natives shepherd them, for they are too indolent even for that service. The whole of this country is volcanic, but of a different character to that of Mount Napier and the Belfast district, where the rivers of lava can be followed for miles, now having the appearance of rivers of huge rocks of trap, cracked and rent by time and heat. At Mount Gambier there is little rock, save the limestone, and the eruptions of the expired volcanoes of the Gambier, Shank and others are only marked by a deposit of scoriae and ashes. The bottoms of the craters are now lakes of unfathomable depth, the waters of which on a cloudy day assume an inky darkness, which gives a degree of solemnity to the scenery. There is also a singular feature in the country. There are many holes and caves. The caves appear endless and it requires some degree of nerve to head an exploring expedition in these subterranean territories. Some of them are very beautiful when lit up by torchlight. Long, pendulous stalactites hang from the ceiling or roof of the cavern, connecting themselves with the floor and the continuous dripping of the water and deposit of the sediment has formed itself into the most grotesque shapes. Niches and seats appear of this glittering white marble, which a not very imaginative mind might conceive to be the seats of the presiding genius and his attendant satellites. I have never discovered any petrifactions in these caverns, but I thought once to have discovered something that would have handed down my name to posterity. In one of these niches I observe the figure of a man, bent as in an attitude of thought, his elbows resting on his knees.' I approached and felt this object, when I found it to be the body of a man, as I supposed petrified. Anxiously I examined it, and took an arm and hand, which were loose to the open air, for closer inspection. I then found that it had more the appearance of a mummy, the skin having become hard and dry, and containing nothing but dust. It, however, merited closer inspection, but I had some miles to ride, and determined to defer such examination to another time. Since then I have never been near the spot." The holes which I have before alluded to are perfectly perpendicular and vary in size. Some go down perpendicular, as if bored by a huge auger, some two hundred feet. At the bottom is water, which has all the appearance of being bottomless. The country between the mountain and Adelaide is very flat, having large gum forests well grassed and extensive swamps and plains. It has evidently been recently flooded by the sea, there being large beds of oysters exposed where any large tree has been blown down and torn up the soil. The surface is also covered with oyster shells and other deposits of the ocean. To the north the country becomes arid and barren of any vegetation save the eternal Murray scrub. I have travelled much through the western country, <laughs> ascended the crater, or rather descended it, of Mount Elys, but of all that country you are equally well informed with myself. Of the plenty which you asked me to mention, I have no pleasing reminiscences. I only know at that time it consisted of a district of cattle stealers. The only pleasing recollection is that of a certain trip I took with your excellency, when certainly our bush experience did not ensure us a perfect knowledge of our locale. I fully believe you attribute our eccentric course to my guiding, but you will allow, and I have always believed, you are fonder of leading than being led. Thus, I take no credit for our shortcuts on that occasion. I fear I have spun this out much longer than your patience will allow, but if any portion will afford matter worth noting, I shall be glad. With a sincere hope that I may have the pleasure of talking over Australian life with you, happily united to your family in brave old England, believe me, my dear Mr Latrobe, yours most sincerely, E.P.S. Sturt To C.J. Latrobe, Esquire End of section 49.